A data catalog provides an index into the datasets and schemas of a company. Data teams are growing in size, and more companies than ever have a data team, so the market for data catalog is larger than ever. Mark is the CEO of Stenma and the co-creator of Anmunzen, a data catalog that came out of Lyft. In today's show, Mark shares how his history as a software developer, data engineer, and product leader at Lyft has helped him to create a vision for the modern data catalog. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a senior director of product management for Security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Jocelyn Byrne. Welcome, Mark Grover. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to, um, I've met you before and talked with you a little bit, but for our audience, do you want to give just a quick bio? Sure. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Stemma, which is a data catalog. Uh, Prior to that, I was a product manager uh, working in the data team at Lyft and helped Lyft scale uh, its data use within the company and comply with regulations. And prior to that, I was an engineer working mostly in the data space, helping anywhere from uh, companies that were in the uh, fintech space to working at Cloudera, building uh, distributed software like Spark. Uh, we will dig into many of these things today, so I'll just stop there for now. That's right. That's right. We first met with our deep interest in the data management space, uh, which wasn't as uh, front and center when we first started talking. And data management, you know, when I think about it, it's um, scanning for sensitive data. It's the um, protecting the data, high quality, flagging it for some downstream use case, right? It's all of these activities um, so that uh, individuals can trust it and use it. Uh, so that t- writ large, that's the thing that we're mostly concerned with um, when we started talking about this area. But I thought I'd like to just kind of back up and, and get your opinion. As more and more large organizations move to the cloud, why is this hard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to pile on on what you just said and uh, build on it. So if you were to take data management, it, it falls in three broad categories, in my opinion. The first one is know your data. And I'm an analyst. I want to do analysis of sales that happened last week. I don't know where to start. But more often, this problem is more acute when you have sort of these citizen analysts, right? I'm a product manager, and I want to see how my product is being used, and I don't know where to start, right? Or I'm an engineer, so on and so forth. And then there's also sort of uh, compliance aspects to this that also go in the same category, know your data, which is like, where does it flow from? Where does it flow to? And these can be used for regulatory needs, uh, different needs in different sectors. So that's like one category. The second category is understand the sensitivity of your data. And so that's like, here's my PII, here's where all the sensitive data is, and that can be classified based on what's in the data or the importance of that data to the organization, whether that's business critical or open for uh, everybody in the company, so on and so forth. And the third one is data quality. So I have some data and I want to be able to make sure that it ha- meets some checks and balances on an ongoing basis. So like this column plus this column should always add up to that column or this column should never be null, yada, 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 right? Um in general, this is difficult, 
And so all of these three problems together to me become data management. This is difficult because organizations have a ton of data. By the way, they've had a ton of data for a while. And I think this difficulty has increased exponentially uh, over the last few years. And I think that's actually more cultural. Organizations have gone from being centralized organizations around production and consumption of data to being decentralized organizations around production and consumption of data. And that, I think, has been the changing point that has made this set of problems exponentially harder to solve than they were before. It's not, uh, it's often talked about as the volume of data. I do not think. I think that obviously contributes. I do not think that's the uh, uh, the main thing that's contributing to the complexity today. Now, that's interesting. So you're making the analogy of the culture, right, of having so many distributed, uh, democratized sources and uh, consumers of data within an organization. But it's also mirrored in the architectures of cloud data, where you have distributed uh, data existing and persisting everywhere uh, and maybe also changing in a lot of different places. So I always think of it like a string of Christmas lights versus like stars in the sky, right? You used to be able to have this straight through process that you could sort of see, but now you've just got a whole lot going on in every direction. And so I think it has become really difficult for, you know, those who you mentioned data stewards and data communities to, um, uh, so it makes, you know, it just makes it hard for these data communities to do the right thing. Um, where do you think, when you think about like who in the organization, who are the personas who play in, when you think about those three pillars, who are the personas who have the most impact on finding, trusting, and then getting value out of this data? The, the first persona that uh, comes to mind around finding, trusting data are these analyst uh, data user persona. We call them analysts. By the way, you don't have to have a title analyst to be be a part of this persona. Uh, a product manager, a, a salesperson, a customer success rep can put these hats on in order to find data for their account or their prospect or their product, right? Uh, and this persona suffers from two things. One is that there is a deluge of data available to them and even though they have, they may have the skills to get to that data, which is primarily SQL, they do not know what is, where to start, what's trustworthy, so on and so forth. And uh, that's the sort of uh, primary primary opportunity and problem for them. It's pretty acute. Um, I think the second persona we should talk about is the persona of a data engineer and analytics engineer. This person is responsible for. Uh, producing data models, data sets, tables, call them whatever you may, uh, that get used by the organization. And data analysts are, are, are uh, consumers of them, but they are also like in a very interesting and tight spot. Why? Because there are downstream of product engineers, which have incentives to ship code as quickly as possible to move the business forward. And data for them is a... Uh, is uh, an exhaust, right? Which gets used for important things in the company, uh, but mostly for analytics. And um, so what they find themselves is like really trying to stand at the back of this exhaust and trying to capture whatever is coming. And the things that are coming can change overnight, often without any heads up 
uh, to them, right? So there's that spot. And then you've got your analysts who are like, hey, I don't know where to start. How come you aren't building the data models that are canonical data models for the company? Why is it that I cannot find what the user definition for a user is at my company? And like, where do I go find that definition in a consistent format that has all the attributes of the user I need, right? And then that coupled with ad hoc questions, the changes that are coming in, just, just, just like managing the inflow and the requests from from users to use the data is uh, you are right at the center of that combinatorial explosion and uh, without very uh, great tools to help you. And so that's part of the reason that you um, started Stemma. Can you tell us a little bit about what Stemma is trying to solve? Yeah. Uh, so Stemma is uh, right in that know your data uh, off that base, the, the, the three-layered pyramid at the base of it. Um, I think I can probably better answer that question by maybe sharing a little more about the origin story of Stemma, if you, if I may, and then yes. get to it. Yeah. Um, so I started my career doing data for uh, as an engineer, uh, and I was building essentially data pipelines for a forex broker uh, in in Canada. And that time, Hadoop was becoming. Uh, a big thing, and they were doing marketing attribution on a standalone relational database that was buckling. And so they got me to help them move their uh, ETL pipelines to Hadoop, but also port their um, attribution algorithms on uh, on Hive, uh, which was a SQL engine on Hadoop. I'm dating myself now. Uh, and uh, I did that work. And from there, I was like, oh, I actually... Uh, don't want to just do uh, pi- pipeline work and sort of uh, help just one organization. I want to help more organization that almost always push you, pushes you to a platform role. So I took on a platform role, which meant that I was an engineer at Cloudera working on uh, open source projects like Hive, Spark, and BigTop uh, for about five years. And I helped sort of large organizations uh, like one of the ones you used to work at in the past uh, to to manage the scale of data. And after that, I... Uh, transition to being a product manager uh, and moved to Lyft to help again on one organization get the most out of their uh, out of their data. Uh, the story of Stemma actually starts around the time when I was at Lyft, and the problem at Lyft was that there was uh, a lot of uh, data in the organization, a lot of appetite to make data driven decisions as a culture, uh, but the same problem we were talking about around. Uh, understanding, trusting, finding data by these citizen analysts. That was just a huge uh, bottleneck. And I wasn't hired to solve that problem. I was just one of the first data product managers at the company. And I started uh, I started talking to people, and this was the most common problem that came up. I'll pause here because I want to hear what you had to say. I want to pause you a little bit there, and I want to hear the rest of your story. But it's so interesting you mentioned that because I've worked for these really large financial big organizations who are always wring their hands that the young startups – have it all figured out and that they're leveraging their data with real precision. And so what I'm hearing is this is doesn't matter how established or new you are, everybody's kind of struggling with this massive um, amount of data. Absolutely. The struggles may be different. Like larger organizations have more fragmentation and more siloed data. Um, and so uh, that leads to similar problem, but solutions actually may be slightly different or uh how you think about them may actually involve more pieces of solving the puzzle than just like one part of the problem that you're trying to solve. While a, a newer organization may not may have less silos, but just have like uh, data that's not as as useful. It just like leads to cruft and 
uh, maybe different values of data within the same system. Um, so I interrupted you though. You you get to Lyft and you're talking to people who have this problem. Yeah, and so I I work on solving this problem and I uh, create an internal product at Lyft. Um, the name of that product is Amundsen. The type of that product is data catalog. These names and types of products don't matter. The problem it's solving is like, I have a desire to use data to find some insight and I don't know where to start. And so like help me get started very quickly to get me to the trusted data sources that I should be using in order to do this analysis, right? Amundsen was super successful at Lyft. Uh, and we can uh, put the link to the to the show notes here. Um, Amundsen had 750 users every single week for context that people who had titled data analysts were less than 200, 200 or so, mm-hmm. right? So it lowered the barrier to entry for people uh, and 3x more people could use more data uh, every week compared to the past. Till this date, it remains the single most loved highest CSAT scoring product internally at Lyft, right? Amundsen was then open sourced and a bunch of companies, Brex, Asana, ING, pick up to solve the same problem. Following that, I found two things. One was that there was only a very small subset of companies that were willing to spend the time and energy to take an open source project uh, and make it make it successful within the organization. And I think that's maybe the obvious thing. The non-obvious thing for me was, I think the catalogs were focused uh, too much on the analyst persona and not enough on the persona that produced the data, that data engineer persona or analytics engineer persona today. And the issue of this was that data engineers remained dealing with those acute problems, which we alluded to slightly at the beginning of this conversations. Um, But they were also... um, that led them to have the metadata, like the documentation or uh, sort of additional metadata around what source of truth to not be up to date. That was in the catalog. So what you had to do is you have another group of users you can help solve problems. And as a side effect, what you get is more up to date metadata in your repository of information around what is trustworthy. And that was a core thesis of when we started Stemma. Like, we're going to solve the analyst problem, like no no uh, questions about that. But we felt very strongly, and I continue to this day, that you have to solve the problems for data engineers as well, because that is the only way you can uh, you can uh, consistently uh, and uh, over a long time maintain a really successful, powerful data catalog within the organization. Interesting. Um, I agree. I think the data engineer upstream data producer uh, is uh, still still deserves more love than they're getting. Let's uh, take a turn and just talk a little bit at an architectural level, if you can kind of step us through it. Uh, for Amundsen, like some people may not know what it does. So can you kind of walk us through the diagram? I'd love to just walk through the left to right diagram of this is Amundsen and what it did. And then here's how Stemma kind of fits over that and it extends that, if you could help us understand that just functionally. Yeah, totally. Um... So let, let's start with uh, left to right on Amundsen, and then we will go left to right on Stemma. Left to right on Amundsen is that it takes your uh, information schema metadata from a, a data warehouse, and it pulls that in to create a, a listing of all the, the tables that you may have in your warehouse. I'm oversimplifying it here. Um, and then it uh, takes the query logs off the data warehouse, and it does very light parsing on 
how often a table is used and builds an, a ranking uh, on the most used tables are listed higher up in the step and the search ranking and less used tables are listed uh, listed uh, lower down. And um, and it populates uh, sometimes additional metadata, like how often a table is updated, depending on the integration. Mm-hmm. And you, on the and it stores all this in a in a relation in a in a graph database, uh, Amundsen used Neo4j, um, and it uh, has a search index on it, which is uh, Elasticsearch based search index, which then both of these together power uh, a UI. Uh, and that UI is um, a React-based uh, uh, user experience that users interact with in order to find, search, and understand data. That's Amazon. So it looks at these structured structured data uh, sources, Correct. and it'll tell you a pointer to the location. Um, it kind of ranks it by um, query interest. Yep. yep. I'm sure that's an oversimplification, uh, and adds a little bit of extra enhanced metadata so that people searching on the other end, on the front end, then get a little extra boost of like what's the most important data and uh, why do I care about it is you know then easily accessible. And it's easy to say like the focus is on, um, you know the, the uh, popularity, right? So people, yeah. the, the, it, it's um, not what people tell you they're using the most, but what people actually use the most. Okay. Totally. Yeah. So now as we go to talk to Stemma, actually, we should talk about capabilities of the product first, and then I can talk about the architecture because the architecture supports the capabilities that you need, right? So problems with Amundsen um, were uh, a a few-fold. Like one is that it focused on automation, but you you realize soon that there is uh, often a person who sometimes knows... uh, information that should fine-tune the ranking or change the ranking uh, in their mm-hmm. head. So an example, I'm using users table V1. By the way, the data engineer working on users just launched users table V2. And that starting today, you shouldn't be using users table V1, right? And uh, I should provide a construct for this engineer to be the human in the loop and say like, hey, even though the past usage says go users V1, actually only use user v2 going forward right and so um this just one example there are countless examples of getting human in the loop in order to continue delivering the value to the data analyst persona and uh that requires uh this human in the loop is often the data engineer and provide like i can't ask them to update metadata what i have to do is i have to provide value to them so they they uh, so they actually update the metadata as they're deriving value from it, right? So you're like, okay, what can I do for the data engineer? So it's like, oh, when they're actually going, when they're planning the project to create users V2, I'm going to go and uh, provide them information on who the hell is using users V1, right? And so they're like, oh, it's not being used at all. Or, oh, it's being used by this ML model that feeds the production application. Or, oh, these are the three people that query it the most. Like, let me go talk to them, Right. And when it, I'm done, like maybe I integrate with GitHub pipeline uh, and uh, trigger a change in a status on the catalog uh, as to what the source of truth is when the pipeline is deployed and that changes the ranking, all this other stuff, right? So that pushed us first and foremost in Stemma to build a product for the data engineers. Now, what kind of product do data engineers care? They care a lot about operational products, right? Who's using my data? How much does it cost? Uh, 
I um, uh, I want to debug an issue that's happening with this data. Where does it come from? Uh, and so that's the sort of main, what is the history? How, when was this column added? That, that was the main driver for architectural changes in, in Stemma. So uh, the product features that got ev- evolved in Stemma were uh, a really robust lineage parsing and lineage graph, uh, a really robust usage analytics uh, around who's using my data. And then... Um, using the lineage to power use cases. So it's like, okay, I'm going to use lineage to tell you who's using your data. I'm going to use the lineage to trickle down descriptions that you may have added on one particular column, like five levels upstream, all the way through to all the columns that it applies to. And so those were the product uh, sort of changes that we made architecturally that meant that we changed um, our main repository of metadata from a graph database to a relational database. And uh, the reason was we wanted to preserve change history when a particular metadata field was added, when was a particular column added or removed, and graph database was a really bad choice for that. So we moved away from Neo4j to that. There's like a whole user experience change around how users interact with the graph that didn't even exist in Amundsen. So like that is uh, that that is like another uh, change around uh, the experience of engaging with the graph and uh, building use cases on top of that. So I would say those are the two main uh, changes, yeah. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, lineage. Um, so yeah, it makes sense to do lineage on a more structured data warehouse. Um, and I also, uh, you know, I like that you're focused on the user experience. Um, one of the things I, I like about your thesis is um, my experience has been that the data engineer for one downstream app might be the uh, a, consumer of someone else's data engineering upstream from them. Uh, and as you're, you're right, they're not all the same level of experience or knowledge. And so having a user experience that supports many different profiles, I think makes sense because some days you're a data producer and other days you're a data consumer um, or maybe on the same day, right? It's not black and white. Um, so uh, back to lineage, uh, how do you def- I do want to talk a little bit about that because it's a special feature of your offering. Um, a lot of talk about lineage these days and a lot of different definitions of lineage. What do you think it is or is not? Uh, that's an excellent question. Lineage is uh, relationships, right? And um, there's two kinds of relationships in, in data. Uh, there's the parent-children relationship, and then there's uh, siblings relationship. So parent children is like, okay, I come from, I was produced from this particular provenance. source. Yeah. Provenance. Uh, uh, sibling relationships are, I often get joined with this. There's the foreign keys between these two things. I'm going to actually focus. I think the, the parent child relationships are much more interesting. So I'm going to focus on those and I'm going to uh, take the sibling one out. So when I talk about relationships, actually like off data, data is actually a super broad term as well. And so relationships can be between uh, uh, data sets. So there are uh, tables or columns that come from one another. Uh, they could be across systems. So you can have uh, this particular table comes from this particular ETL tool, which comes from this particular service. And that particular table is being used by that particular BI tool in that particular chart, right? So we've gone across systems. Uh, and lastly, it can be task-based. So you take uh, data and you can say like, hey, this particular ETL job pr- runs these three different tasks. One like puts 
creates the data. The second one tests it in the staging thing. And then the third one promotes it. That's like three stages of the ETL job. That ETL job then triggers three other ETL jobs that do something or the other, which may produce data sets, may make emails or whatever. So you can have a whole lot of task level lineage and go between tables and tasks and link them together. Um, this whole mind meld is like technology, it's complexity. Uh, but the interesting things are like, what are you, okay, all right. So it's complex to get all this kind of lineage. And I think a lot of us in technology um, get excited about, okay, I'm going to do the most uh, overwhelmingly filled lineage graph and power use cases on it, right? The, I think the reality is populating lineage graphs uh, is a lot easier today than it was uh, in the past, thanks to technology and infrastructure improvement. But I think we lose sight of what are you going to use this lineage for? Because um, you don't have to have a full lineage graph in order to serve use cases. You need to you need to identify the use cases and then find what portion of the graph do you need to fill in order to serve that use case, right? And um, I don't think in the in the industry today we talk enough about what those use cases are, and we like beat our chests about like I have the most full lineage graph, right? And like I um, I don't buy that. I like that. You know, it's like the olden days; everyone wanted everything real time, and in the product, we were like, "Is it how real?" <laughs> For the expense, why do you want it to be real time? The same thing with lineage. I think a lot of people are encapsulating transforms inside of lineage as well, and that's just incredibly difficult. And the question is, what would you use that for exactly? Um, but it actually has a nice interweaving with your, you know, it might make sense if you have a high usage, high priority data set, which, you know, you have a special insight into in your product, you know, so you kind of turn the knob up on how much lineage do you need under what circumstances. So I really like that, that approach. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we haven't had a chance to um, touch on, I'm just trying to organize my thoughts here. So the, you know, there's a lot of players in this space right now. Um, when I started in this, there were not that many, you know, not many organizations, a lot of people had to build their own, all right, as they adopted cloud data. And so uh, I think now organizations are saying, okay, you know, there's now enough maturity in the market. How should, um, who buys Stemma? And um, how should they think about it compared to other offerings in the market? Yeah. The single biggest competitor we have is doing nothing. Over 70% of the organizations do not have a data catalog, right? And um, and I think uh, while there may be a lot of competitors that people may consider like data catalogs, uh, the single biggest competitor, I think that just represents the opportunity and the impact we can have in the organizations. Um, but listen, I can't, I can't serve every single customer, uh, every kind of customer today, right? So I'll tell you like what are uh, the kinds of use cases that drive people uh, to uh, Stemma and uh, what makes them ideal or not ideal. They fall in a few different categories. The first category is you are um, in a large organization uh, that has a... a, a ton of data that you are trying to build a decentralized, uh, democratized culture on, uh, and you have the people, and, but you don't have the context around the data. Uh, and so these generally happen to be public organizations. Um, I won't give specific examples of our customers that fall in 
what categories, but names of our customers are listed on stemma.ai so people can read them for themselves. Um, and so generally this requires like actually a, a multi-pronged effort. It requires like an organization's acceptance that we want to democratize data. Uh, it requires a, an organization to break down access silos. And then it requires a product like Stemma in order to enable uh, that this this full transform, transformation, right? It almost sounds like the buyer in the enterprise who's concerned with personas, with enablement, um, you know, if there's democratization of data, but sure. there's kind of two ways to get to that. Um, you can be like a tech software person like me, where it's like, oh, just put the platform in place and people will figure yeah. it out. Or more like you, what you're saying is, let's think about the use cases and the engineers and the people who have to get that context and yeah. use it. Um, that seems like the that would be the the crew that would be, oh yeah, it would see Stemma and really understand it. Totally. Um, the, the second kind of buyer is uh, one that's going through an organization with uh, a lot of data change. Uh, an example would be people migrating from uh, one data warehouse to another. An example could be the data that's in the data warehouse itself changes quite often. So it's like, oh, I'm moving from one marketing tool to another. I'm moving from one CRM system to another. Uh, the more change and uh, entropy you have in your data, uh, regardless of the size of the company, this uh, the the product becomes more invaluable to you. Um, and given our whole premise around enabling data engineers uh, in understanding the impact of their changes, and uh, this becomes crucial, right? And so, oftentimes, you find uh, fast-growing organizations uh, using it, or just like product-led SaaS companies that have a lot of sort of evolution happening in the company that use it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are a company where like a column uh, from your production service was populated every day and overnight it changed to being nulls like that, that you fall in this category. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the third, the third category of organizations are companies that uh, are creating a culture of uh, uh uh, citizen analysts, right? You don't have you don't have enough analysts in the team to create insights for the rest of the organization. So what you need to do is like we all need to bring our shovels and and mine, right? And uh, that is what uh, you know. Companies like Air, uh, Grafana uh, uh, and many others in semi customer base, some I can't name. Uh, are fall in the category four, where they're trying to um, sort of enable non-data in the title people to do analysis in the company. I'm curious. Um, one of the interesting things about this problem space is, in order for someone, many new companies are offering the best solutions. Yeah. But you're asking established and even highly regulated firms to. Yeah. Um, give you all their data or have you <laughs> look at everything, mm -hmm. right? Um, what have been some successful implementation paths yeah. where you've been able to provide value? I guess, you know, how would you get started with this? If I'm an implementer, I, yeah. you know, I don't want to turn over everything. What has worked for you guys? Yeah. So a few things, right. In order to get value from the catalog, you actually don't need to get the catalog. The, you need to get the breadth usually, but not the depth. And so you don't need uh, data to be shared. 
you only need the metadata to be shared. So it's like, what are all my assets, tables, columns, and dashboards? And what are the queries being run on these assets? And yeah, sometimes you put PII information like, oh, select star from credit card data where credit card number is equal to that. That generally isn't the case. Most organizations are pretty... uh, uh, sensitive about where they put credit card data because of regulations like PCI. And so um, generally, I think the barrier to providing data in order to get value from the catalog is not as high as it may come across the first time we chat. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the other, the I think the, uh, the interesting parts are like, if you're a large organization, you have probably like different groups of people who use, use data. And I think you want to start with just one group and exposing them data in their, their their group to see if this is working out for them. Uh, but in a, in a smaller organization, you were pretty like, uh, there's there's just one, the, the entire company is one group. And um, time to value becomes a thing. I actually worry, I, I see less from people about like access to data and more about like, okay, so you scrape all the metadata, all the query logs, is that enough or do I need to do anything else before I start getting value from it? And the reality is, I think anybody who says that, now there are two use cases, right? There's the use case of data discovery, which is I'm understanding data, what's trustworthy. There's a use case around data lineage, impact analysis and operations, right? Operations, you can get started on day one because you only operate on data that's like ground truth source of information about when things change, right? Discovery, we find that often there is curated tribal knowledge in your head that needs to get out uh, mm-hmm. and correct and inform the catalog uh, out of what it may use automation for to inform um, itself, right? And so I think anybody who tells you that like on day one, you can start using the catalog for data discovery is lying, mm-hmm. right? And what I spend a lot of my energy and where Stemma spends a lot of its time is like, how do I lower the amount of energy and time that's spent in getting your catalog to value, right? And that to me is the holy grail. That to me, and that, for example, the things that we have done, one of our customers, when they were onboarding, they were like, oh, here's a list of like, they were like, okay, our our warehouse has like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of tables, right? Which ones am I going to go do some amount of curation, certification, deprecation, maybe write a description for the tables, so on and so forth. And they were like, uh, they had this idea that they were going to, uh, do a ranked list descending order of the number of queries on their tables, and they were only going to do the top 10%. And that worked out really great for them. So what do we do? We build in our product a, a descending ranked usage uh, of tables, and now every onboarding that happens, we slap that list, be like, all right, in order to get to value, like these are the things that we need to just double check and uh, once you have entered documentation or double check that it's certified or deprecated, uh, then we are good. Another thing we do is we want to get as much bang as possible for every single amount of curated effort you do. So that means if you added one description somewhere, I want to apply it to every single place where that description applies to, right? I want to, if you them a flow it flow that through that description yeah, yeah okay. exactly right same thing whether that's a tag uh and all that and then the other thing that's a question is that yeah. also for like um language that's specific to an organization sometimes people talk about certain types of that data in their own way yeah um, yeah 
So for that, what we recommend is that you tag like, like a user's table, maybe called a passenger's table at Lyft. I'm making a hypothetical example here, right? Like, And so like um, tagging that particular table as passenger, even though it's called user, will make sure that when, when searching is done or descriptions are entered, that it comes together. Yeah. Um, the last part... Uh, I had one more thought. Uh, I had one more thought here. I totally interrupted you. Oh, no. Hey, this is, uh, I love the organic conversation. So I'm sure it'll come back to me. Um, Well, actually, we were just talking a little bit about time to value. And that's a core Mm -hmm. theme of your recent release. Congratulations. Doing a major release is no joke. No, thank you. Um, We're like a SaaS product and we release every day, multiple times a day. And often we get together after like, things have piled on enough and we've gotten customer feedback. All right. We're like, okay, this looks like a bundle to talk about publicly, even though this existed in portions. I, I appreciate it. Cause I come from that era of software, big bang deliverables. And I understand a release that has like a name. Totally. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's gotten me some getting used to, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. What are the focuses of the latest bundle? Yeah. So, um, we were chat. We were chatting about uh, providing products for data engineers to engage, and so one huge investment we've done here is enabling a data engineer to be able to see who's using their data, and that's both ETL jobs as well as uh, court, like people who ad hoc query the data, and we built like an experience in the lineage graph, which allows you to any, any organizations will have a really complex lineage lineage graph. And so we built an experience that allows them to engage with it. And which I think in the most meaningful way I've seen. And by the way, I think we aren't even there yet. I don't, I think we have a long way to go to make lineage information like comprehensible but I, I think like there's so much focus on me filling my graph that nobody is like, how do I actually use this graph, right? And by the way, part of this graph will never be used in a UX way. It should always be used by machines, right? Like, okay, you, hey, you are about to delete this table in, in like the GitHub PR is saying, did you know there's like three dashboards that are being run from it with these many views on it? Right. So this release lays the foundation for us to start with the graph model and hit the use cases with the graph and has an API, which allows uh, organizations to interact and engage with the lineage models in their products um, and uh, powering use cases on top of this graph. Some of these use cases are in the product, like the impact analysis messaging workflow, which is like I want to bolt. I want to tell specific people who have used this table in the last 30 days that this table is getting deprecated. No longer am I sending a blast to everybody on Slack, but it's a very targeted message to the people who have actually used it, right? And I'm saying, do not use it starting this date, right? So these are examples of use cases that we have built. And the second is like our investment in further lowering time to value, which with our additional lineage capabilities allows us to auto-describe columns and trickle down existing descriptions down there. In one customer, we saw over 10,000 descriptions being automatically populated just overnight because of a product like this. I, and you know, just yeah. let me just uh, plus one how important that really is, you know, because you've Throughout my career in the last 10 years, I've seen so many of these massive undertakings to sit everyone at their desk, everyone to tag and write about, you know, what's the schema, what's in this. And the 
is such a duplication of effort. It's often not accurate and people really don't like to do it. So it's just exciting to me when you hear that you can take the good work of one person who knows the data and flow it through so that the people who are the data analysts, whether that's their title or not, that's a phrase I've learned from you in the last hour, um, they can spend time doing analysis instead of like prep and tagging. So I think that's a really thoughtful feature. You've also extended your uh, support and integration with DBT. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we integrate now with DBT Cloud. That means if you're a DBT Cloud user, all of this functionality comes pretty straight out of the box for you um, and uh, sort of provides the same rich experience uh, out of the box. Interesting. So I want to switch gears a little bit as we come to the end here. I want to ask um, a little bit about Stemma and a little bit about how you're doing. Um, how's Stemma doing as a business? It sounds like things are going well. Yeah, um, we have great customers that I'm lucky and fortunate uh, enough to work with every day. Some of our customers include SoFi, Grafana, iRobot, Convoy. Um, many of these organizations, I believe, are at the forefront of using data in their respective domains. And um, they challenge us to be better every day. And that's as a product, as people. And um, uh, as a startup founder, that's what I care. Like, you know, where I am today is... Um, doesn't actually matter all that much. How I learn, how quickly I learn, uh, and do I have the right feedback loops to learn is the thing that yeah. matters, right? I'm lucky to be in a great place right now, but like that's the thing we optimize for, and I've just it's just been yeah. Really you know, it makes me think like velocity is the product in so many ways now, especially for a complicated offering uh, in mm -hmm. data. You've got to have your design partner, your customer in there, kind of build building out with you mm -hmm. as things are just moving too fast. Um, so that's that's exciting to hear. You know, um, you have had an interesting just switching to you as a founder. I just want to hear a little mm -hmm. bit about your personal journey. We often mm -hmm. have uh, listeners who um, are technical product managers or they are data engineers thinking about when will I be an early employee or when will I found my company? Um, share with us a little bit about um what it's like to come from an open, you know, you had a real open source mindset. You spent so much time open sourcing at Munson and that's not trivial. Um, and then moving into um, being an entrepreneur and a founder on your own, like what was that process like for you? Uh, I, I have a few thoughts that I'll try to summarize very quickly. Um, one is that just because I am an open source founder doesn't mean you should be one. I think uh, you have to find your stick, right? And my stick's this this path but like if you try to copy my path like it's unless like you you have similar skills and abilities to me like may not be the right path for you likely isn't right and so um understanding your stick is uh is important um and i know i have been in a place where uh i didn't know what my stick was and uh that's okay too that means that it will come to you right and the only thing I'll say is that continue working on things that uh, bring joy to you and excite you. Because at least for me, uh, that has been the like that to me is the leading signal of like what I will become really, really good at. Right. And so if something keeps drawing you, even though it doesn't seem like related to your current job or related to like what you're doing, uh, that's OK. Like. And don't don't approach it necessarily from like, oh, this is going to be my stick, which will then lead to a company like approach it just like this is fun and I'm going to do it. And good things will come out of that. Um, 
Just drive, yeah, just stick with like genuine interest. What what haven't you liked? What have you experienced as a founder that you're like, oh, this isn't great? Um, there's a lot of stuff uh, that is around operations, right? And so that goes anywhere from fundraising to managing expenses. Like there's, uh, yeah. And I think like if you're a product person, like, yeah, of course you're not going to like, you're not going to want to spend your time like nailing down how the money is being spent and making <laughs> sure that we aren't spending extra <laughs> money on staff tools. Into, like the top salesman for your company <laughs> yeah. and you get, don't get to scratch your product itch. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And there have been yeah. things by the way that I, that I liked as a founder, uh, which were surprising to me as a founder, you were, out there selling and, and like you're spending like there are two kinds of founders and they can exist in the organization like you're spending energy building product and like sort of innovation in the company internally and then you are like externally sort of bridging the gap between like uh understanding what the buyers are looking for the users are looking for and uh i don't think these are like sort of exclusive uh, but you play these two roles every day right and um, I've thoroughly enjoyed like uh, talking to folks that are like dealing with problems in their own domain and understanding what the hell is going on in their lives. Right. I just had one conversation yesterday with a company that's uh, in the streaming space yesterday and they're not a STEM customer. And we were just like learning about each other, how we see the world. And sometimes STEMA is the right solution for help them solve the problem. Sometimes it's not. But I think that exposure that I've gotten and the ability for me to like understand, communicate, help, uh, whether that's to STEMA or outside uh, with a variety of different partners has been immensely gratifying, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm grateful to be in that spot. Well, that's amazing. You've had um, quite a journey uh, building a product and getting funded um, is not trivial and having your first customers. So sounds like things are going great. We'd love to check in with you uh, a little further down the road and understand um, certainly about your, your integrations with the DBT are super interesting as well. I'd like to hear more about that the next time we connect. Um, thank you so, so much for spending some time with us today. It was great talking with you. Likewise, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure speaking with you.